Good morning, Stuff You Should Know listeners. This is one of your faithful co-leaders, Charles W. Chuck Bryant, here to tell you about cult deprogramming. This is my Saturday Select Pick for the Week. It's from September 22nd, 2015. Uh, You know that Josh and I love to talk about cults. Really fascinate us. But here's the flip side, cult deprogramming. After you leave the cult, you can't just walk out of there. It takes a lot of of effort to uh, normalize yourself back into society. And cult deprogramming is how you do it. So here you go. Check it out right now. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant and the always wacky Jerry. So this is Stuff You Should Know. <laughs> Once again, the 60 seconds preceding the record button being pressed is the gold. <laughs> Wish we could sell that stuff. Yeah. Sell it on the street. People be hooked on it. You know what the street value of that minute is? What? Yeah, probably about five bucks. That's not bad. Yeah. Uh, Chuck. Yes. Have you ever been in a cult? Um, no. Not technically? <laughs> not at all. Remember, we've done episodes on cults. Yeah. On brainwashings. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is pretty much the natural extension of that progression. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about deprogramming uh, and the cults one and Surely. brainwashing probably, but yeah. this one, it turns out, has a lot of interesting history I didn't know about. Yes, man. It is like a crazy history. A, a dark spot on America's recent past. Yeah. Yet again, yet another one, because apparently the powers that be really got everybody so scared over things like the communist threat. Mm-hmm or nuclear weapons or what have you, that America was basically just like a, a herd of spook cattle for many decades. And, and yeah. they, they, we channeled our anxieties out on anything other or different. And this is a great case of that. Yeah, and the courts will get to this, but they said roundly that you can kidnap and torture and rape people as long as it's out of love. As long <laughs> as those people are weirdos. Yeah. yeah, as long as it's a parent loving their child. Yep. In the harshest extreme way, man, it's you can it imagine crazy what people went through. Unbelievable. So, um, the whole thing we should say, like America did lose its mind collectively for many years. Yes, and it happens from time to time. Started in good old Salem. Yeah, before there wasn't even an America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's a long tradition here in this country of everybody a collectively, insanity. yeah, going yeah. crazy. Um, and like I said, this is a case of it, but. This case did coalesce around certain things. It wasn't just out of the blue. It wasn't no. out of nowhere. No. Um, for the f- to start off with, in the late '60s, early '70s, um, the uh, there was a real division between generations in the United States. Sure. Huge. There was the parents who still remember the '50s. Yeah. Were raised in the '50s, born in the '50s, maybe, but definitely were. A little more buttoned up and up with Ike than their kids were. Yes. Okay? So imagine if you have kids and they're going through this rebellious phase and they're smoking pot and they're, like, wearing motorcycle boots and rocking out to the Beatles and, like, flipping you off every time you look at them. And then all of a sudden, this weird 
tranquility comes over them and they start wearing robes and they shave their head except for there's a long ponytail in the back. Or, and they're still wearing boots and smoking pot and listening to the Beatles. Right, or <laughs> or they start wearing bow ties yeah. and um, like quoting scripture to sure. you. Wouldn't you be like, well, that's a little weird. This is a little odd. Something's going on here with, with my kid. Yeah. My kid, who's 20, yeah. underwent like a serious religious conversion that has never been seen before in our family. That's a little yeah. weird, And right? it's not one I approve of. Yeah. So there's these groups that at the time were called cults. But today, if you um, read sociology texts or studies or whatever, they're called uh, new religious movements. Yeah, sects. Yeah, right, with sects. a C-T. Sects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and these groups are basically, at the time, they were all termed cults. Sure. And you usually, when you think cult, especially in the United States, it's like um, some sort of Eastern religion or something like that. But it turns out that the, the cult movement of the early 70s, late 60s, and into the 80s were actually, um, f- for the most part, Bible-based, like yeah. Christian cults. Sure. But they they took um, Christian beliefs and teachings and went really far out there with them. Yeah. Um, or there was a huge influx of Eastern thought an Eastern religion into the United States, too, and anybody who joined this group joined a cult. But today, if you call them a cult, it's not very nice. You call them a new religious movement or a sect, right? Yeah, or in the case of the Source family, which I've talked about as being my favorite cult. Yeah. They just like to have sex and do drugs a lot. The Source. <laughs> right. They were a cult, though. Uh, well, yeah, sure, by those definitions. Right, at the time. Yeah, I'd call them a commune now. Okay. Probably that had a, a band and a charismatic hang gliding uh, front man. Right. The charismatic thing is a, a huge thing. Oh, yeah. That's usually the the one thing that is the, the commonality in all new religious movements. They are centered around um, a central figure. Yeah. But as the guy who wrote this article, um, which is a pretty good article, I have to say. This is not the grabster, was it? No. Boy, it was he, a, a he newbie. Be mad. A newbie. This newbie has taken the Grabster's stuff. Yeah. It should have been the Grabster. Well, the Grabster's gotten a uh, serious focus on all things Dungeons & Dragons these days over at io9. Oh, well, good for him. Yeah. Uh, He's moved on and up. (laughs) But anyway, the author of this article uh, points out that cult is a very slippery word. It has like an in-group, out-group kind of sentimentality attached to it. Sure. The point is... Over the, t- over the years, um, this whole idea of your kid going undergoing a religious conversion and then just kind of becoming different, it was bothersome and worrisome yeah. to the parents. But then Jonestown happened, and all of a sudden, any kind of semblance of law or religious freedom or anything like that went right out the window because sure. it was shown— and even before that, thanks to the Manson family, but really um, with Jonestown, it was shown that these cults that supposedly up to that point people thought were harmless or even helpful um, could be very destructive. Over 900 people died. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I get it. I get why people would be upset about perhaps their children joining something that in any way, shape, or form resembles Jonestown. Right. So what do you do? Well, you could hire someone to <clears throat> kidnap and torture and beat them and yell at them into submission, a.k.a. 
de- uh, deprogramming, a.k.a. Uh, brainwashing, or I guess they would call it reverse brainwashing. Right. That was kind of the key is this idea that um, you were combating this conversion to a, a new religious movement or a cult group or whatever um, based on the idea that your kid couldn't possibly have undergone this conversion and joined this group based on his or her own free will. That's right. So uh, thanks to that mindset uh, and a guy named Ted Patrick, who we'll talk about right now, the Cult Awareness Network was formed. And uh, Ted was – there were there were many deprogrammers. Well, I don't know about many, but there were a handful of deprogrammers in this time period. But Mr. Patrick sort of led the way. Uh, he was born in the red light district of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and apparently had a, a really bad – speech impediment such there that he couldn't even communicate with people right so he dove into religion and what he said uh was quote it wasn't uh, long before all i could think of was hellfire and damnation and um so he had a bad experience with religion growing up and then had an opportunity in the early 70s to uh go and save somebody's kid who fell into uh, what they called a cult well, it was. He was offered a job. Yes. So there, there was a scriptural based um, Christian group called the uh, Children of God, now called the International Family. And apparently um, they had tried to recruit Ted's son and nephew out on the beach in San Diego. And Ted was like, What do you mean some group tried to recruit you? I guess I'll just go infiltrate this group. <laughs> Yeah, well, he was also approached by parents whose uh, children were in this, uh, what they called a cult. So, yeah, he infiltrated and said, you know what? Uh, they were brainwashed, and I'm the guy that can fix it for a fee. Yeah, which is weird because, um, so Ted Patrick and there, somebody uh, named uh, Mia Donovan came out with a documentary recently called Deprogrammed. Ooh, I'd like to see that. Uh, yeah, apparently it's very tough to find and get your hands on, but it's out there somewhere. Um, and it's all about Ted Patrick. Ted Black Lightning Patrick is his name. Yeah. And he um, he was an unlikely candidate to to become the face and the leader of what was an anti-cult movement that had arisen in the United States thanks to Jonestown and thanks to the fact that kids were joining cults left and right. Yeah. Um, he was a high school dropout. Like you said, he, was a, he, he had had his own um, experiences with – Scripture and, and Bible beating and all of that kind of stuff. And he, I guess, was his heart was in the right place from what I understand. But he did some really, really questionable stuff over the years after he formed the Cult Action or Awareness Network. You think his heart was in the right place? That's, that's how Mia Donovan puts it. Really? Uh-huh. I think he's trying to make money. So that was another thing, too. Supposedly, he was working not for profit that his expenses were paid and he wasn't really pocketing the money himself. Boy, he went the other way pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, at one point he was charging up to twenty five grand, which would be the equivalent of about $120,000 for each case today huh. to, uh, to deprogram, to kidnap and deprogram your child. Yeah. A lot of money. Right. Uh, so he, uh, he basically at the very beginning said, you know what? Uh, how do we get away with this? And he said, I think if we 
are working with the parents, then we won't be prosecuted for kidnapping because it's their own kid. So I won't, by proxy, be uh, affiliated as a, an accomplice because it's their children. Yeah. And you can't kidnap your own child in 1971. No, you can't. Um, and so that worked at the time. 21 was the uh, federal age for minors, right? Or for an adult. Anything below 21, you were a minor, unless a state had gone in and rewritten law and said, no, it's actually 18 or 19 or whatever. Yeah. So that that covered like a pretty decent amount of the um, emerging cult population. Yeah, and he also figured that I won't get in trouble because once we have freed these people and deprogrammed them, they won't press charges. It's like they'll be delighted. Right, exactly. They're, they're brainwashed. Right. All we have to do is unbrainwash them. The other way that he figured out um, they could be protected by law was if, uh, if the uh, member, the cult member, was uh, an adult, they could apply for what's called a conservatorship. Yes. And this is basically um, based on that old kind of law where uh, a husband could have his hysterical wife committed if he didn't like her attitude, that kind of thing, where there's a very, very loose burden of proof on demonstrating that the person was out of their mind. So much so that in this point in time in America, if you were, um, hi- if you hired a, a cult deprogrammer, yes, all you had to do was also shell out. 500 bucks or something for a psychologist who would come in and say, the very fact that they're a member of this cult demonstrates that they are mentally ill and therefore power over them should be granted to their parent, even though this person's an adult. And once that power was granted to the parent, the parent could extend that power to the cult deprogrammers who would then go and kidnap the cult member and then begin the process of deprogramming. Yeah, and they wouldn't even make any attempts to assess their mental state. It was just sort of... I don't know about grandfathered in, but it was just sort of lumped in under the umbrella of the conservatorship. Yeah. Thank you again, psychology. (laughs) Way to go. So, uh, well, should we talk about some of his greatest hits? Well, let's take a uh, let's take a break first. Okay. Right, so Patrick, the first thing he did when he first started doing this was because he didn't really have a shop set up or, or uh, a staff at this point. He he hired um, thugs, street thugs, to do the kidnapping. Right. He would just pay dudes <laughs> that were tough ruffians, as they were called. You know how you to know, abduct these kids. You know, like with um, whenever you hear like of a um, a private investigator making air quotes. Yeah like, is also involved in, like, a jewel heist or something like that, where there's that real, like, gray area that's occupied by some people who are maybe working on the side of the law, but really they're doing really unlawful things to achieve those ends. Sure. These are the kind of people that were hired by the Cult Awareness Network. That's right. Uh, And he uh, eventually was joined by uh, someone named Sandra Sachs, who was a housewife uh, whose son was deprogrammed. And from, I believe, the Harry Krishnas. And uh, then he got, I think, a, a guy named Goose. I'm not sure of Goose's real name. 
but he was his became ultimately his like big henchman. Right. So they were sort of the three heading up the network early on, at least. So one of the things he did, um, it wasn't always uh, religious cults. Even he was hired. Basically, any time a parent didn't like what their kid was doing, they could hire him to kidnap them and scream at them and handcuff them to a bed for a week Yeah. until they said they didn't want to do what they were doing, whether it was being a lesbian or just being a converted Catholic. Yeah. There was one case that he got in trouble for for false imprisonment, I believe out in Denver, um, where a woman had left the Greek Orthodox Church to go live her own life, and her parents didn't like that. So they hired Ted and his uh, company to deprogram her. Yeah. I guess, or reprogram her back into the Greek Orthodox Church. It was two girls, two daughters. And uh, their quote at the end of this ordeal was, there was nothing to deprogram. (laughs) Right. We just left the church for another one. Yeah. Yeah. There's another woman, an English professor out in California in San Francisco named Sarah Worth. And she had become an anti-nuke activist, civil yeah. rights activist as well. Yeah. Her, her mother back in Pennsylvania thought that that just was very unbecoming. So she hired the Cult Awareness Network to deprogram her daughter. That's right. This is going on, and it was legal. Well, not, I don't know about legal, but it was protected. Here's the thing. So let's talk about why this was legal or quasi-legal. At the time, again, America is really, really scared that there's this cult movement going on that the youth of America is losing its free will. This is what the whole thing's based on, that there are groups, insidious groups out there who are recruiting and brainwashing our kids. What's to become of America if all of our kids are running around as Hare Krishnas or Bible thumpers or what have you? Yeah. They're the future. So we have to fight this. And if they're being brainwashed, we need to de-brainwash them. So not only was it groups like the Cult Awareness Network who were thinking these things. They were also, like, drumming up a lot of publicity as well. Yeah, they thought it was a, a big conspiracy. Yeah. A communist conspiracy is what a lot of people said, too, that this is the, ultimately the communists were behind it. So not only is it this obscure fringe group that knows how to work the media who believes this, it's also the people reading the newspaper, like parents, cops, judges, juries. And if you take someone to court for kidnapping you and beating you up until you agree to stop being a Hare Krishna, and the judge is convinced that you are, have been brainwashed by the Hare Krishnas, the judge is not going to rule in your favor. And therefore, this whole technique, this whole method that was used for more than a decade was quasi-legal. For as many times as he was dragged into court, Ted Patrick was only in prison twice. Yeah. One time for like 10 days and another time for 60. Yeah, there was one uh, famous case, uh, Stephanie uh, Reithmiller in Ohio. Um, she, uh, uh, her parents hired her, or hired Patrick and his crew because, uh, well, because she was a lesbian. Well, they suspected she was a lesbian. Yes. Was she in fact? Yes. Okay. So they paid eight thousand dollars, which would be twenty-one grand today, to uh, kidnap her. She was nineteen years old. Uh, she was walking on the street with her friend on the sidewalk. They pull up in a van. Mm-hmm. They mace her friend, and they throw her in the back of the van and uh, you know subdue her. Uh, she was driven to Alabama from Ohio, uh, and over the course of the next seven days, was raped uh, once a day, 
um, by a guy named James Rowe, who was one of the, the henchmen that worked with uh, Patrick. Right, in order to get her back into the heterosexual mindset, right? Yeah, uh, which we're going to do a whole podcast on gay deprogramming at some point. Okay. Um, because that's a whole different thing. Yeah. But that has its roots in something like this, obviously. Uh, at the trial, they because um, this did go to trial, um, the defense uh, attacked her roommate who was gay and said, you know, look at her boots and her pickup truck. And she has a Doberman pincher. <laughs> like, this is very unbecoming. Uh, she has a very over overbearing style. What they were trying to prove was that the roommate had brainwashed her into becoming a lesbian. Right. Uh, and just look at her with her boots and her pickup truck. Right. So eventually it goes uh, to trial, and the judge, um, Hamilton County Judge Simon uh, Lease, L-E-I-S, he was not very sympathetic at all of her lifestyle, of course. Uh, he said homosexuality was immoral, and uh, even he told the jury that the lifestyle was an issue, but I'm not going to represent to you that I approve of the sexual preference, and she, he called it unnatural. So eventually... He said what the parents did was wrong, but I don't think there's any question that they did uh, was totally done out of love for their daughter. Uh, and he described the tactics, even the rape, as uh, to detract, like you said, from her lesbianism and attract her to heterosexual activity. Good Lord. So he got off with that one, huh? Uh, yeah, and I don't think he was actually in the room. Like it was, There was a lot of back and forth on like what he knew and what he didn't know about this case. Yeah. But the guy who raped her got away with it. And this was, I mean, that was, again, he was dragged to court over and over again. And it wasn't, a lot of the cult groups did not fight back. And in some cases, because they didn't want to open their books, from what I understand. Right. Which they may have had to had they fought anything like this in court. But also because uh, um, America as a whole was against them. Like, have you remember Airplane, the original one? I just watched it the other day. Where he just beats up a bunch of moonies in the airport who uh-huh. are trying to, like, offer him a free flower? Yeah, yeah. One of them's Joe Azuzu, <laughs> for God's sake. I know. He's America's sweetheart. Well, he should have been beaten up for that. So, um, there was this, this uh, it, it was a joke, obviously, but it, it definitely pointed out this whole sentiment that America had toward cults at the time, which was like, they, it was open season, man. They were fair game inside and outside of court. There was an indictment in New York where they indicted some Hare Krishna leaders for using mind control. In an indictment in a court of law, the words mind control were used to indict somebody for a crime, which has never been even proven. Like, how do you mind control somebody? It's crazy, but this was like the kind of the sentiment that was going on at the time, right? Yes. And so you could be, if you were a member of a, a what was considered a cult group, and your parents were well-heeled enough to afford the Cult Awareness Network, you could be sitting there hanging out in the commune one day, playing your acoustic guitar, what have you, thinking about consciousness and the universality of it, and all of a sudden the door gets kicked in, yeah. and Ted Patrick and some of his henchmen enter, grab you, your buddy stands up to be like, hey, man, you can't do that, and they mace him, yeah. and they take you, throw you in a van, drive you several states over, yeah. maybe to your parents' house. I think they frequently use the parents' house because it added like an extra sense of legality to it. Right. 
And then they would keep you there for as long as they wanted to. They would beat you. Yeah. They would um, abuse you physically, uh, emotionally, verbally. Mm -hmm. Um, They would starve you. They would deprive you of sleep. Um, And you weren't allowed to leave. You were berated constantly. They would take shifts. They would have your family come in and berate you. And all of this was completely made up out of whole cloth by Ted Patrick. Like, he, he had no training whatsoever in any kind of brainwash techniques. No, well, there is no training. Right. He, but he just kind of intuitively got that, like, if you deprive someone of sleep or food, they'll start to do what you want them to. And um, the whole goal of it, as far as he was concerned, was to create, um, to snap somebody out of it. Right. And when somebody snapped, they basically gave in to your will in that they were no longer resisting. They were no longer saying... Uh, my right to be a Hare Krishna is protected by the First Amendment. You have kidnapped me. I want to go. Please leave. Please leave me alone. They just said, fine, you're right. I don't want to be a Hare Krishna anymore. That could be snapping. It could also be something that was a lot closer um, in complexion to something like that religious conversion, but it would be like a conversion back where they'd start crying and weeping. And these are the ones that were frequently pointed to as proof positive that deprogramming actually worked because there are a lot of people who were deprogrammed who said, this is a great thing for me. Um, but that has been explained time and time again as basically uh, a lot of kids who joined cults did so because they felt like they weren't accepted at home or by their families or whatever. And they would see once they were kidnapped and, uh, and taken back to their parents' house that Maybe their parents actually did care about them more than they realized. They were willing to spend some money and hire Black Lightning to come beat me up until I agree to come back home. So maybe that was the reason for this this snapping. Yeah, and sometimes they would fake it all together to get out of that prison, uh, which is a case which we'll talk about right after this break of Jason Scott. So, uh, Jason Scott, this was not a Patrick affair. Uh, this was a guy named Rick Ross uh, and another guy, uh, two guys named Mark Workman and Charles mm-hmm. Simpson. Yes, but they were referred by the Cult Awareness Network. So That's right. So, CAN was involved. Well, yeah, they were referred, but this wasn't Patrick heading up this operation. Right. Uh, and this is a guy named Jason Scott, and he was kidnapped and uh, brought to uh, out in the boonies in Washington State, and he was held there for days against his will, uh, physically abused, all the stuff that we've been going over, uh, because they wanted him to leave this uh, Pentecostal church that he was in uh, with his uh, brothers. I think his mom was in it at one point, but she left. The sons decided to stay, and she was like, I don't like what's going on over there. Mm-hmm. So she hired them uh, to to deprogram him, um, it failed in that Scott eventually um, faked that he was, after four days of torture, he faked it and said, I, I don't believe that stuff anymore. He broke down in tears and said he completely rebuked everything that he had stood for. And so they said, well, this is great. It worked. Let's go out for a celebration dinner uh, with your family. 
and um, he was allowed to use the bathroom at the restaurant <laughs> by himself for the first time in a week, and he ran to the police. And the police arrested these guys. Um, there were uh, there was a civil suit filed. <laughs> this is where it gets really interesting. There was a civil suit filed on Jason Scott's behalf by a counselor for the Church of Scientology, uh, lead counsel by the Church of Scientology. Mm-hmm. So now Scientology is getting involved. They they end up bankrupting through this court case. Uh, they awarded eight hundred seventy five thousand dollars in compensatory damages, uh, a million in damages of punitive nature against the Cult Awareness Network, right. and two point five million against Ross himself. Right. It ended up bankrupting them, and then the Church of Scientology buys out the Cult Awareness Network in bankruptcy court, buys their assets, buys their logo, buys their name, renames it the New Cult Awareness Network. And now it's run by the Church of Scientology. Right. So if you're looking for help to get your kid out of a cult, including Scientology, the helpful people there will explain to you how great Scientology is. <laughs> What's funny, though, is that like this, this um, Jason Scott case was one of about 50 that were brought at the time through Scientology lawyers. This oh, yeah. Was, this just happened to be the one that stuck. Yeah, it went all the way to the Supreme Court uh, where they denied the appeal. And in the end, Scott only got about $5,000 and 200 hours of professional services from Ross, which I didn't understand. No, no, I'll explain it to you. So um, They became buddies, apparently. They did become buddies. So apparently, Jason Scott did, he forgave his mother. He also forgave Rick Ross. He broke from the Scientology um, lawyer. Yeah, yeah, he hired a different lawyer after that. I guess he felt a little fleeced, maybe, by the Scientologists, or used, I should say, and ended up being chummy with Rick Ross. So, he sold Rick Ross his settlement, which should have been $3 million, for five grand and 200 hours of his services, of deprogramming services, yeah. right? To deprogram, I think, his daughter, or something like that. I don't know. That's what I couldn't find. Yeah. So, um, Rick Ross is still at it. He's a he's an exit counselor. Um, and he, if you listen to him talk, it's really weird, man. While approaching this from the outside, like there was a war that was going on that is still being fought here or there, but it, it, you, the average person wouldn't know about it. In the media, between the um, anti-cult movement, yeah, which is headed up by people like Ted Patrick and Rick Ross and the Cult Awareness Network, the old version of it, and the... I guess, cult movement, which has as disparate members as the Church of Scientology, yeah. the the Catholic League, First Amendment people like the ACLU on another side. So there's this weird, like, this battle that went on. And Scientology ultimately won just because they bled the, the anti-cult movement out in the courts. But, like I said, Rick Ross is still at it. What he's doing now is exit counseling. And if before deprogramming was coercive brainwashing, then um, exit counseling is the opposite of that. It's basically like a drug intervention, but as far as cults are concerned. Yeah, the idea is that you get the whole family involved. You get the uh, the, the person who you're trying to... Uh, council, I guess, involved, and they all agree to meet, and they talk to them about what they were doing, and they explain to them about the harmful practices of that uh, cult or not cult, mm-hmm. depending on what it is, and um, it essentially involve it's a, it's a really intensive therapy 
group therapy with your family. Right. But again, not coerced, supposedly voluntary and the proper way to go about it. Still expensive though. Right. But like a normal intervention or like a drug related intervention, like it'll probably be a surprise to the, um, uh, the cult member. Yeah. Um, but in a, in a exit counseling seminar session or whatever, that, that person has to agree to stick around and listen. Yeah. Like they can leave at any point in time. There's no more kidnapping and duct taping. Right. So that's the state of affairs now. And it's really weird, again, because th- this is the, the remnants of this, this info war that went on between the anti-cult movement and the cult movement or the new religious movement movement. And um, it, it's really kind of uh, – the whole thing is muddy, morally speaking, because there are people walking around – including ones that were abducted and beaten up or mistreated or abused or tortured by cult awareness network or other deprogrammers yeah. who say, if it weren't for those guys, I'd probably still be in a cult right now. Sure. And I'm really grateful to my parents for shelling out the money to, to have these guys kidnap me because I was really, I, I was lost uh, in life and uh, very vulnerable at the time. And this really helped get me back on track. Well, yeah, and cults can be destructive and, and uh, destroy people's lives and kill people. Right. Um, but what you can't do is just – I think the problem came when everything was lumped together yeah. in one big – under one big umbrella called cult. Exactly. That's exactly right. Because who was Ted Patrick or anybody else the great decider yeah. of what made acceptable religious beliefs and non-acceptable religious beliefs? Like where was that dividing line and who gave him the right to do it? Man, could you imagine – I mean if this was going on today with the way things are? Well, it kept going until 1995 was when that judgment came down that bankrupted uh, yeah. Cult Awareness Network. I'm talking and, about 2015. Yeah. Like, I mean, with but, the way things are, I, I could see – I could see wackos left and right hiring people to abduct their children and, oh, set, yeah, and yeah. set them straight. Yeah. You know? Well, supposedly they, they made out pretty well in the satanic panic of the 80s too. Oh, I'm sure. That that documentary deprogrammed is largely about the director's stepbrother who was deprogrammed by Ted Patrick because their parents thought that he was a Satanist or whatever because he listened to yeah. heavy metal. We should do one on uh, the PMRC and backmasking that whole – We'll just call it like 80s satanic panic or something. Let's do it. That'd be a good one. Okay. Uh, there's a book. Uh, Ted Patrick wrote a book called Let Our Children Go. There's an exclamation point in the title. <laughs> That's right, because you better. Uh, in 1976, and here was one quote uh, of something. He, he bragged a lot about some of these things. Yeah. He said, uh, he was talking about Wes, one of the people he deprogrammed. He said Wes had taken up a position facing the car with his hands on the roof and his legs spread eagled. There was no way to let him inside while he was braced like that. I had to make a quick decision. I reached down between Wes's legs, grabbed him by the crotch, and squeezed hard. He let out a howl and doubled up, grabbing for his groin with both hands. Then I hit, shoving him headfirst into the back seat of the car and piling in on top of him. <laughs> Jeez. And then the Jason Scott, I think, was, you know, duct tape, put face down in a van, and like this 300-pound guy sat on him. And that can kill you. Yes, it can. Pretty kooky stuff, man. Yeah, let's. Uh, how to combat brainwashing by brainwashing. I love pretty neat. Looking back in America's recent past to see how crazy it's been from time to time. Every once in a while, it just goes nuts. We just go crazy. Yeah. Um. Let's see. You got anything else? Uh, I got nothing else. 
Uh, if you want to know more about deprogramming, you can type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Hey, guys, just finished listening to your Hot Air Balloons podcast. I'm calling this Hot Air Balloon email. Okay. I jumped the gun. Uh, having worked for a hot air balloon company for two years in Napa Valley, where I grew up. I worked on the ground crew, or the chase crew, as we called it. Uh, the company I worked for, Napa Valley Balloons, has balloons that can fit two people uh, all the way up to 20 people. Uh, the envelope, although it looks like, can weigh in excess of 600 pounds, and the basket is easily twice that, if not more. And he wrote a lot about the uh, getting all the hot air out and what an arduous process that was. I can imagine. Uh, and then he has a, another good little story here. Uh, one day after we launched the balloons from just north of Napa, the wind picked up and one of the pilots couldn't find a safe place to land. Uh, I'm going to call this Josh's worst nightmare fortune. <laughs> the balloon kept going south, and what was supposed to be an hour flight was getting close to two hours. The balloon got so far south that it was approaching the San Francisco Bay, and if it got over the bay, the balloon wouldn't have enough fuel to make it to land again. So the pilot made an emergency landing in a wheat field uh, that was the last land before the bay. We try not to land somewhere without permission, but in this case, it was an emergency. The pilot left with the customer, so we had to contact the owner of the land and had to be let onto the property to get our balloon. Understandably, the owner was angry, but we gave him a bottle of champagne, as you said. They still do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and offered to pay for the damages to his crops. Uh, while most flights had no issues whatsoever, this one sticks out of my mind because it was a particularly exciting day. Nice. Uh, that is Ryan from Washington, D.C., via Napa Valley. I like the uh, the part about champagne. Sure. <laughs> I like the part where the pilot left with the customers really quickly after he landed. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, who was that? Uh, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. That was a good story. Again, I like the champagne part the most. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us and tell us all of your champagne wishes and caviar dreams, you can uh, tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.